Welcome to The Better Build, a podcast that explores the world of software engineering leadership and the people who are shaping it. Let's get to the episode. Hi, David. Welcome to the podcast, The Better Build. What have you been doing today? Thanks for having me. And things are good. Things are good. Just getting kicked off for today. You're in beautiful Los Angeles. Yes. Way better than Canada here for now. It's all snow. I'm in short sleeves. I've got kids in New York who are fun no. with that. Thanks for being here today. It's great to have you. A man of a lot of experience. You've been in the industry for a very long time. So I'm pretty excited about our conversation about it. Thanks. Me too. Do you, do you want to do maybe to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm David Subar. I run a company called Interna. In Interna, we work with private equity firms, VC firms, and product management engineering groups. And our whole purpose in life is helping make the process of building products more effective. How do you build quickly, release quickly, get market feedback, do it again, again. People might think about it, about agile process, but it's bigger than that. One of the problems that we find is almost all engineering groups will end up becoming feature factories. Yeah. End up becoming cost centers, and that's very painful. And one of the things that we do is help align them so they always have a seat at the table, so they're always producing value for the companies. And the reason investors like us is they don't often understand, why do I put capital into product management engineering, particularly engineering? I don't understand what they do. And by tying engineering and product management to driving the company forward, it empowers the engineering team and it creates new value for investors. So that's what we do. We're all like CTOs and chief product officers. I've sat in both seats and we've worked with companies like the Walt Disney Company, with Lita.com that got bought by LinkedIn, with investors like Silver Lake, a lot of VCs, everything basically from A series or typically B series and bigger. Okay. That's pretty impressive. Very high profile companies. It's also not the first time I hear in these shoes with engineering teams not being seated at the table or where the, the upper management doesn't really understand what they do, what are they deliverable. That's funny because not only the big companies, but also the small company are really struggling with this as well. It's a relatively young industry. We're still struggling with the same kind of problems. It's true. You know, it's, I'll do just a little more about us because it'll give context. We're asked to do due diligence for investors when they're going to invest in a company. We're asked to look at product management engineering groups when for existing company and say what's going well, what's not going well. For investors, they might say, hey, we don't have someone in the seat. Can you fix it for us? And so we'll sit in, we'll actually help fix the product management engineering team. But one of the things that might be most interesting to your audience is we also coach CTOs and chief product officers. Having seen lots and lots of companies over the 10 years we've been doing this, we see patterns of things that tend to work and tend not. And the thing you say about this is common, it's true. And there are common patterns that will help in anti-patterns. Okay. Yeah. That's super interesting. Yeah. It's, it's been a struggle and we've seen that in our own business because we're a marketplace for developer. I've also led team into early stage companies, but very quickly you get to that point where the company grows and then you get disconnected from upper management. Then suddenly everything becomes really opaque, really opaque, really hard to set goals, really hard to see the deliverables. You have a big engineering team sometime, or you don't really know what the individual is doing or what is their impact or contributions. So the visibility of the process itself is not there. So everybody gets confused and everything got lost in translation. How do you see the remote work as well? What were the impact on this? Yeah, it's interesting because before COVID, some of our clients were already 100% remote, but most weren't. And the things that we saw that worked in 100% remote teams, and this is for teams that were US-based, I'll talk about a different standard when they were remote teams offshore. The U.S. teams, the ones that work the best, would tend to bring all the engineers in on a regular basis, say quarterly, to the headquarters to work the ability to know somebody, not to be a transaction 
every conversation being a transaction on Zoom. What did you do for me today? What'd you do for me? It turns out that people are important and being able to break bread with people has real value. So that was a pattern that we saw before COVID that worked for remote only companies. During COVID, a lot of companies got forced into that model, didn't necessarily have proper techniques, and it was hard to travel. Now we're back to we can travel, but that doesn't address the question about what happens if you're remote people in foreign places to the U.S. And what we suggest, this isn't the only pattern that works. We suggest co-locating teams as opposed to individuals. And there's a couple reasons for that. If you have people that are working on the same problem in the same vicinity, they can get together the same way that the remote companies before COVID. They can create an esprit de corps. The bandwidth of a whiteboard is better than Zoom. Also, you can make a team responsible and have authority over what they do. So let's say you have a team in Vietnam. I'm just picking an arbitrary place. You have people in Vietnam. If they're a team, they tend to be a lot more effective than if they're a bunch of individuals working on different problems. I, I totally agree. We saw the same thing in our business, which well, what we try to do. We try to co-locate team as much as possible. Because co-locations, people are on the same schedule. They're on the same problems as much as possible. So it's not about the distance. It's about co-locating people working on the same problem. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's just and like architecting software. Yeah. You have encapsulation. If you have the team in the same place and the same responsibility and the same authority, you've now encapsulated the thing and you can measure the value of that thing. And the team itself can measure the value of the people in that thing. And the yeah. people in that thing can then become peers and can break bread in the same way that I was mentioning before. Okay. Yeah. We observed the same kind of patterns and where it was better to use location for efficiency. But yeah, as you said, you work with customers where they were already remote. So that kind of helped during the COVID. But yeah, now that everybody is trying to go back to the, the office, it's a bit of a complicated topic. But even our customer right now, they stay remote. A lot of them, I would say they stay remote. They can cut costs by cutting office space and everything, but they do bring people. They try to do bring people quarterly. And you'll say, I've seen this trend where every quarter there's some kind of a quarterly planning, with the whole team. So at least everybody get on the same objectives. We have some customers that are doing exactly what you said. They went all remote. Now they're trying to go back to the office. It's hard, particularly when you're in San Francisco and you hired someone in Des Moines. That person in Des Moines is probably not moving to San Francisco. And you now have a choice to make. Are you going to let them stay in Des Moines or are you going to try to get rid of them? Switching costs on people besides being difficult and breaking the social contract. It's expensive. So you're probably not saying to the person in Des Moines, you need to leave the company, but you might try to only hire new people in your area. But now that also creates a social rift. The black person works from home in Des Moines. Why can't I work for home in San Francisco? You would probably fix that problem over time, but it's not a quick fix. No. And also, I think you go back to being, if you only want to hire people locally, you go back to being into a super highly competitive market where prices are going to go up like they were before, which was yes. insane. But at some point, because of the scarcity of resource and people have to be local, the, the price were insane in terms of cost for an engineer. Now the price was starting to flatten out. You can pick people where you want, but now forcing people to go back is going to cause a lot of trouble. I, I've seen that the trend has not been reversed yet. I totally understand this, but it's not what people want. That's exactly It's not what people want. Riot Games, the company that made League of Legends, always yeah. had a remote team in St. Louis. It was yeah. less expensive, high quality engineers. It turns out intelligence is well spread throughout the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's about finding the people, finding the teams, creating the teams that can do what you need. Yeah. I don't think they need to be in San Francisco. Companies want to bring them back in. I don't know that they're going to succeed. Maybe they'll succeed not for engineers in other specialties. Maybe that'll be easier because there's not that price competition that you were talking about.
tool industry has always been about advocating this, especially startups in San Francisco, which be more like an ego thing than anything else. It's not really reasonable in terms of the cost and everything. And it's more like an ego boost to be able to have a huge team locally in San Francisco. It's the way the VC industry works, the way the startup works, it's a lot of ego in this industry as well. It been a lot of layoff, and I think there is some kind of a reset as well for the companies that figure out maybe in the end they don't need that big of a teams. Maybe they can operate more efficiently. We will think that with Twitter, of course, Elon Musk has been a bit excessive, is on the extreme. But I think it also shows that maybe a tech company does have to be 10,000 people to operate a SaaS business, right? What do you think about yeah, that? I, th I think that's true in two layers, three layers, actually. Not surprising that Elon Musk is extreme. He's extreme on everything he does. That's layer one. Layer two is the VC industry in Silicon Valley and San Francisco used to only want to invest in companies that they could drive to. And that's changed. And so I think that the pressure from investors in the VC side to have all your developers local has changed and that's not going to go back. And the other thing is over the last decade, there's been a lot of platform changes that allow us to have smaller companies that have great leverage. Back when AWS was starting, before then, you had to have your own servers. Now you can use AWS or Azure or GCP, and so you don't need as big of a platform. Or with OpenAI, being able to build your own GPTs on top of that platform, it allows companies to be smaller and leveraged because you can use other people's technology and build on top of it. The need to have large exit technology companies, those still exist, and you can still build a large exit technology company. OpenAI being one that at some point be huge exit, but you can also build smaller companies that may not be as big exits. You might take less in and exit with less out, but have a great return or great lifestyle businesses. But if you look like uh, Instagram yeah. exited with a billion dollars and 10 employees. WhatsApp did the same, right? WhatsApp was also yes. bought by Facebook. There were 50 people. I think there is a value totally about, I'll say that I really respect these high efficiency teams. Very small people, high value product. You don't need to be 10,000 people to build this. But as they get integrated sometimes, they get integrated into larger and larger teams. And then the product disappear or productivity is, is way down. When you see these big tech companies, sometimes they're overgrown. That's an interesting and difficult problem in that it's like refactoring everything. What problem are we trying to solve? What kind of people do you need? How many do you need? Not this year, but in previous years, the good news was there was tons and tons of initiatives. So there was plenty of places to put 2,000 people if all of those initiatives made business sense. This year, we're in a year of cutback. 2023 was cutback. 2024, I think, will be cutbacks most of the year unless we see some good exits in the IPO market. So I think we're going to continue to see layoffs in some of these Org redesigns will be more painful than they were before. I don't think anyone likes laying up anyone off. I hope they don't. But once again, it's like refactoring software. You need to have an org design that matches the problem you're trying to solve, the people you're trying to serve. I really think about Conway's law a lot and the reverse Conway maneuver and thinking about org designs and product management engineering that help create efficient organizations that are serving clients. Yeah, it was really interesting. I've seen the trend of recently about what was the company. I think Twitch, they offer a bunch of people like Discord, which company that I was expecting to be profitable because we totally operate something 100% SaaS, except for the cost of infrastructure, there is not much to do. It was crazy to me sometimes when I look at these numbers, they don't make business sense. But as you said, before the COVID, where the craze of trying everything because they had a lot of free money and they wanted to create like so many initiatives for everything, but it didn't make any business sense. So now we can see some kind of a reset right now.
with the event of AI and what OpenAI showed, I think a lot of companies are trying to see where they can make, where they can use AI in their product or internally, I don't know. And they try to refocus the company on this, but maybe it's going to go back, as you said, when we're going to see the trend go back up, but maybe they're going to say, okay, I forgot about everything. We're going to rehire crazy and then we reinflate these companies. I do worry about companies that are laying people off and saying, we're going to cut 5,000 people yeah. and just picking 5,000 as opposed to being thoughtful about once again, or design, what is it we need to do starting from first principles? And my guess is, I don't have data on this. My guess is a lot of companies are just trying to cut to a number, yeah, not sure. trying to cut to a value equation you're trying to do. So that's very interesting to see. It's really sad to see all these people go and the wave of the, the industry being like this. It happened before, but I have the feeling it's a bit different. And different dot-com bubble, it's, it's a bit different. I have the feeling sometime that we're back in like 2006, where before the iPhone, where we didn't know exactly what would be the next big craze. But all the people were talking about Web3 at the time, which was Web 3D, AR, VR again, which is some kind of the backup technologies that everybody would like to see, but they never really happen. Are we going to get a new application platform at some point where everybody can build a new business on top of this? I don't know. A lot of people said that blockchain would be an application platform where you can do this read it out, but it never really happened. AI for me is still a company that you can integrate to your existing product, build on top of the web platform. But what's going to be the next trend? The rise of AI, the layoff, the after COVID, the remote work, then the lack of new platforms starting to be precise. It's a bit vague and cloudy. What do you think about this? Is yeah, I think you're right. I'm a little more optimistic about AI than you are as a platform. Um, yeah, that's great. But I, mean, I would love to hear it. The Better Build is brought to you by Mission. Mission is an award-winning network of senior-level software engineers and product builders, backed by a platform that helps engineers continue to learn, grow, and connect. To get your team of fully managed, fully remote, and fully flexible software engineers, or to join our community, visit us at mission.dev. Here's my thought about AI. To the extent it's going to be platform, it'll be different than iOS. In that, it appears that foundation models are going to become common. One of the big costs in, in AI and Gen AI and machine learning is the cost of training the platform. And there's uh, cost of training the foundation model. And there's becoming more and more foundation models that are open source and running it is cheap. And so the question is, does it become like Linux? Which Linux was also, Linux is a platform, it's just not owned by anyone. People then tried to build services on top of it to have differentiation like Red Hat did to some moderate success. They had a good exit, but so OpenAI is trying to do that by making an app store and making tie-ins so you have to keep, stay with them. I think that there's going to be a lot of uses of Gen AI and ML that we don't know. And I think it will be an accelerator to a bunch of things, but I don't think it's going to be an own platform like iOS. And there's advantages to an own platform in that Apple keeps iterating on it. And I have iOS and I've got my Apple Watch and I've got CarPlay or whatever I have. I think this is much more, becomes more like an open source movement. The Federal Trade Commission wrote an interesting paper about three or four months ago talking about monopolies, potential monopolies in AI they were worried about, and they were worried about foundation models, which I think they're wrong about. Data monopolies, which you need to change the foundation models or make your own model on top of it, which I would think that there might be monopolies in certain verticals, but I don't think there's probably going to be a general monopoly. And then the monopoly on people that know how to build AI, which goes back to your early point about companies just hiring people and hiring people like we saw before. And I, and that will be interesting. That one will be interesting. But I, I do think AI 
AI will change things. I think AI changes things in a different way where previous technologies were about blue collar work, automating the factory or white collar work, making a spreadsheet so an accountant or someone can do things they used to do on physical paper. AI is interesting because it automates creative work. And I don't know what that's going to mean. I think it'll be interesting. I just don't know what it's going to mean. I, and that's why I think about it as a change. It's not a platform like I think it will be a significant change and we'll see. Maybe you and I should make a $10 bet and then five years from now, see who owes who $10. That's true. But yeah, as you said, it's really hard to see. It's already being integrated into product suites that make them even more powerful. So even yeah. more monopolistic, like when Microsoft started to integrate like a copilot in every other product, nobody is going to leave. Office is going to become even more powerful. That's right. So for them, that's why they rushed to integrate everything because there was, even if it's not perfect far from it, at least it's the, the office suite became exponentially better and easier to use. For me, it's like AI is going to console, is going to reinforce the incumbent. Is it going to disrupt the incumbent completely? With AI, can we replace Word? Can we replace 100% PowerPoint? In that sense, I, I know you, you don't have to use PowerPoint. I see what you mean. Right. Well, I see what I mean. It's interesting because my wife used to uh, proofread every major document I wrote. Yeah. And yeah. she's now said, she now says to me, did you run this through ChatGPT? Because you, my writing, my, my first draft of writing is generally pretty good, but not great. She would be my like, oh, you repeated this. Now she says, I always spell checked and I always grammar checked. She says, run it through ChatGPT first and have it rewrite, then look at it, then give me your final, right? So exactly what you're saying, it's much more powerful. But I listened to a guy at a presentation said, I know now why I took art history. Yeah. Because he didn't need the tools of Photoshop or he was manipulating the tools. Now he had to just look at what was created on Dali or whatever and choose based on his understanding of what's good and what's not good and manipulate in exactly the way that you're saying. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you, you're totally right. I think like AI is still just a tool. If you were a creative person, I'm fine, but I'm not the best of artists. I just scribble and everything. But I have, I have some of our friends which are real artists. And they use AI in a way that I couldn't even describe what I want to see. You see what I mean? They use yes. AI to describe. So they become, the AI become the, the painter, but they, the way they describe it, the way they want to see something, they, they do some description. Sometimes I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You yeah. see, yes, because it's going to do this and this, and then after that, they're going to refine. I don't, so I don't have to do the manual work of like painting, but in my brain, I know exactly what I want to see. And they yes. prompt in a way. But it's going to be. So you still need the creative director behind the AI. The AI is going to produce exactly what you want. But somebody is going to pilot this in the same way they used to use a pen or a brush. That's the way I've seen artists adapting to this new technology instead of saying, okay, it's going to become stone work and everything. No, I'm going to be able to control what I want because in my brain, I know exactly the output I want. So I've seen that you being used the right way in the sense, like instead of saying, okay, it's going to steal everything. I agree. Look, there's big IP issues that we don't understand, but that's why I think AI is going to change things in a significant way. And I'm sure in ways that I don't know yet what it's going to change, but significant because if you can do that kind of description, whether it's textual or make them like this, here's some images or audio, this multimodal stuff they're doing, that's going to have a bunch of applications. Now, the question is, is this going to get overfunded before we find all these uses? And I'm guessing, like everything else in technology, it certainly will. Probably. And it will crash and it'll come back. Yeah, probably. I see that as well. Because it's the usual cycle. But this, as you said, but this time is a bit different because we've been like, as I was saying before, the evolution of the, the software industry was dependent on the application platform. From the mainframe 
to the way we work, to, to the mini computer, the micro computer, the smartphone, the web. It's an application platform, but we program in a very specific way with a specific UI that was invented like in the 60s. It was the same thing. And every growth been on an application platform. And this time is different. So I don't know exactly what it means exactly, how it's going to work, how you're going to integrate AI into the product. Is it going to, it's different because at that point, we don't have any new application platform. It's a diff, totally different kind of tool. I don't even know. It's really even hard to imagine where it's going to be used. I'm pretty sure at some point, somebody is going to do something and we're going to see that's it. That's the way to do it. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of attempts that fail before we see some yeah. patterns. People are trying to, to teach the AI to program, to do this. It works. It doesn't work. Is it even the right way to do it? Do we need right. to, to write a regular program? It's interesting. Who should have won this battle was Apple. Apple and Siri. Because Siri is in 50% of the devices in the U.S. But this goes back to engineering. Their code quality, and I read some studies about this. And of course, Apple doesn't publish this, but it's all different studies from different parties. Their code quality was so bad that a release would take them four or five months as opposed to multiple releases a day. And if they fix that problem, and clearly they're working on something, that may be a accelerator of change. Obviously, Google's trying to do this with Android as well. I see what you mean. A lot of people have been like looking at Apple as a beacon to see what kind of thing we should do. And you can see the industry is missing Steve Jobs sometimes. Yep. It would have had a really interesting take on it. But yep. uh, I remember when he introduced Siri in 2014, I really thought we were there. Or they had some kind of a secret sauce where they could make it work. And then for 10 years, the product didn't work at all. I, because they have the mass of like software and everything, the assistant should have been there already. But you're right, yes. actually, they should have been like forefront. I thought they were at the time, but they totally They were at the time, yes. They were yeah, at the yeah. time. Everybody thought that's it. Just being able to have an answer and a follow-up question from Siri and be able to take action on something. It's not even done right now. In 2014, they demonstrated that you can ask Siri to move a calendar event in your calendar to switch. An, for 10 years, it was never worked. Yeah. Now starting to see companies trying to do the same thing with ChatGPT, being able to describe a set of actions, to be able to build some kind of a understanding is one thing, taking actions in a software step-by-step. Step. Integration is another thing as well, because having two different kind of software talk to each other is a bit of a nightmare. So it's not a solved problem, but you're right. Apple should have been on the forefront of this if they abandoned this. It never really worked. But also, right. I don't think that the initial serial was based on LLM at the time. It was a totally different technology. But you're right. Yeah, it should have been, it should have been, that's why Microsoft have been super smart. And yes. the opportunity to do this, that's why their stock job crazy because they have integrated AI the way it is right now into their product. They may be able to want to win this. As of the time we're talking right now, Microsoft passed Apple as the most valuable company in the Absolutely. world a few days yeah. ago, right? Satya has done amazing stuff with Microsoft. It was one thing, like Microsoft or hate them, one thing they figured out is how not to become IBM, how to understand the trends that were going on in the industry and fundamentally change the company time and time again, from DOS to Windows, from Windows to CD-ROMs, from CD-ROMs to MSN to some real online services. And now again, it's pretty interesting. But once again, these guys think about org design and they make big swings and they don't try to do everything. They do a lot. They maybe do too much, but they don't try to do everything. Yeah, to, to tie back to what you said before, yes, exactly. Your design is super important. Microsoft is very impressive. Okay, I would not have bet it. It was a different beast like 20 years ago. Our friends of mine works there, of course. A lot. We know a lot of people everywhere, but it's it totally changed. And being yeah. able to change that kind of company of that size, where a lot of people thought they would be the loser of everything, but they become on top of the market 20 years after 
the dot com and everything, it would not have been foreseen. It's just crazy. Some of these big companies have amazing leaders. It, it's still crazy to think, to me, it's still crazy to think that after, I don't know, almost 50 years of tech, the two top companies are still Apple and Microsoft. If you think about yes. it, it's like crazy. If you think yeah. about it, they were battling in the 70s and in 2024, there's still the two companies battling on the market. That's crazy to me. Yeah, it's amazing. And look, it's not just org design, it's the way they develop software. They learned, Microsoft had learned different ways to develop software for this era. They were slow to do it, but they figured it out. Amazon's another one. Amazon's a different one. that's very interesting. They build a bunch of pods to build products. And then if the product doesn't work, they just kill that pod. I had a friend who was there for nine months and had six different jobs. Now he eventually left because he didn't like getting his groups killed time and time again. In their e-commerce side, it doesn't work like that, but in the AWS and the kind of things, it's a different way of doing things. Yeah, I didn't know about this. I know some company have the bot system, the feature teams and everything. You, so you have a bot that, which is totally independent. They, they do their experiment. They can run a lot of bots in parallel. If they like what they do, they kill you know, the whole thing. Apple is organized totally differently internally. Find Microsoft or Amazon is totally different. And they still are succeeding their own way. But they have yep. strengths and weakness at the same time because the model doesn't account for everything. So it could be interesting at that stage of the company, which is why Microsoft is a super interesting use case because they changed the organization structure to be able to accommodate to change. And yep. that's really impressive to see, really yep. rare. This company is like Microsoft earned a lot of respect in the last years and they embrace everything and they support everything. Is the most developer-friendly companies uh, almost in the world because everything is open. Not that say that like 20 years ago about Microsoft. You, know? you said the opposite. They, they were the opposite, exactly. The speed at which they integrated everything to their product, that was really impressive. It's going to be interesting to see. It's still really hard to pinpoint exactly what the winner and the losers are going to be or where AI is going to be as well. Open AI, we see what they've done. We've seen the kind of like craziness that happened to their company like a month ago, where Sam Altman being let go, rehired. It was like some kind of a, a sitcom happening in front of our eyes. I couldn't believe it. Nobody could believe it. It was, it was crazy. Yes, yeah, it's, it's still a, a weird moment for tech. Pivotal yeah. moment between, as you said, the way company are being reset to reorganize differently for this era, how AI is going to impact all the products that we already use. How are they going to change? And yeah, it was going to be the next generation of product on top of what are they going to be built? Pure AI, a combination of VR and AI or regular product with an AI component on it. Assistance is still very blurry. And where is the blockchain and everything? I know the blockchain has been like put aside for a while after all the, the, the issue they had. Is it going to be back? It's, it's really hard to see. But for the first time in my career, it's really hard to foresee. I could always see something in the background in the edge of the smartphone. You could see that the smartphone will become something. Yep. It was not the iPhone yet, but it was a lot of companies. You could see the hardware. It's really hard to foresee right now where the next generation of software is going to be composed of. I'm a big believer in the transformation of software languages. So what I mean by this is in the very beginning, people are flipping switches True. to make bits. And then there was assembly language, which was slightly closer to human language. And then there was Callball and Fortune, which were slightly closer in that as we get different interfaces, not just a graphical user interface, but we're getting better at, I can speak to a computer, that's going to change the ubiquity of computers because it's going to decrease the friction of using it. With text and iMessage, I often just dictate it and see what it writes because it's easier than me typing on my iPhone. And I am optimistic that we're going to have more interfaces, which is going to add the ubiquity of computers. They're already everywhere, but maybe the interface, I hadn't thought about this too, so 
maybe the changes in interface is the next platform, is the next thing that gives us opportunity. Yeah, that, that's true. Potentially, yes, you're right. We haven't figured out what would be the next interface because everybody say, okay, the voice, okay, it's great, but you need a screen, you need to see something. If you ask a system to would give you an answer, the audio could be an answer, but you want to see a screen, so you also throw out the screen. That's interesting. Yes, yeah. And you also want to manipulate. You don't want to dictate everything if just you just want to pinpoint something here. This is what I want to see here. Maybe it's a combination of the, the VR, or maybe it's a, the, the movie Her, where the guy right. has his pocket. We already seen like the IP in where there is some kind of a projection somewhere where you can at least pinpoint, manipulate the data. I know it's a bit futuristic, but I don't know. I know some companies are trying to do bits and here and there of this part. And I also think that for VR to work, you need direct manipulation. You don't want to have joystick in your hand. You need to manipulate the work with your hands. We had a client that was building a VR device that you actually would project holograms in the world, right? You could see through, you could manipulate the holograms with your hands exactly the way that you're describing. Problem is you have to have this thing on your head. Yeah, it's a big problem. They try to reduce it, but it's still a big problem. But yeah, but as you said, maybe the evolution is going to be the UI or you interact with computer for so long. Even Apple and Steve Jobs said, we invented this, we invented the mouse, we invented that's true. They productified the mouse, then they productified the touch and every new Generation, yeah, the keyboard first, then the mouse, then the touch, new kind of application. What's going to be the next generation of interaction with the computers? It's going to be the voice, it's going to be a combination of stuff because the voice sometimes is annoying, especially us human being, beings, really visual. We don't want to hear only. Well, it's interesting what you say because you pointed out something that I completely missed when I was talking about voice interface is that the expressivity of voice is good. It's portable, but it's hard to say. I want to make that a lighter blue. Well, how much lighter? If I could just do a little scroller with my finger, I can show you exactly as opposed to, no, a little lighter than that. No, no, yeah, that's no need something because we're very visual. You need to pinpoint. If you can say the, okay, move this. This is the area you need to feel. You still have to describe, yeah, but there is some glance of that kind of interaction. You still use a pointer and a mouse to do yeah. this. In the future, maybe can we get rid of the keyboard and the mouse forever and manipulate something else? It's going to be just an iPad with voice. That'll be interesting. I, I think yes. you're right. The other thing about that is the advantage of software is the cost of deployment is very small. Sure. We're talking about screens, screens everywhere to make that universal. That is big CapEx. So someone has to reduce the cost of screens, reduce the cost of deploying screens. Yeah. So awesome. Thanks. Do uh, you want to add anything, David? Great conversation. I could talk about this for days. So exactly. <laughs> I've been in technology for years because I'm just passionate about it. You can't be bored and you can't be lazy. If you want to keep up, you have to be there. But if you like it, actually it's a lot easier. Exactly. That's exactly right. Look, I'm, I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about how to make product engineering more effective. I talked about four services. If people want to get a hold of me, they can hit me up. Our website is interna.com, I-N-T-E-R-N-A.com. I'm David Subaru or Subaru without the U, S-U-P-A-R. You can find me on LinkedIn. People want to talk about this stuff. I'm glad to do it all day. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's still top of the mind. Organizing people to work together is still complicated. Our mission, we do that all the time. It's a complicated topic. Even organizing yeah. teams. Organizing still... teams, organizing yeah. architecture, processes. Absolutely. If it was easy, we wouldn't be talking about it now. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'd like to thank our guest for joining us today. For all of you for tuning in, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your preferred listening service. Stay connected with us on LinkedIn and visit our website, mission.dev, for more information on our network and platform. See you next episode.